Welcome to the 158th episode of Reverse Rope Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chow. It's 122 years to the day since the architect of Bodyline, the so-called Iron Duke Douglas Jardine, was born. Plum Warner, tour manager on that infamous trip, said of Jardine, he's a queer fellow. When he sees a cricket ground with an Australian on it, he goes mad. So 122 years to the day since Douglas Jardine was born, and I reckon nine years almost to the day since you and I sat in the same room and recorded an episode of Reverse Swept Radio. An event of comparable historical <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So we are here in London together. First time in a, in a, in a very long time. Um, and what have we got coming up on the podcast today? Um, Andy's going to be talking about mathematicians and cricket, um, which I'm looking forward to. And we're going to be reviewing uh, One Billion to One, The Great Indian Cricket Dream. Spoiler alert, it's bloody awful. Yeah, maybe one we won't be recommending, but you'll have to have to wait a little bit to hear the details. As we, when we were talking before this, Andy said he, he Andy, Andy has promised to go to town because he says the BBC should be able to do better. And if that doesn't keep you listening to hear Andy going to town on the BBC, I do not know what will keep you listening. Um, but before all of that... A moment to pause to remember Bob Cattle. Yeah, so um, I saw in an obituary actually in the Cricketer the other week that he had passed away. He's the author of the Glory Garden series of cricket books. And in many ways, they were classic children's books, you know, underdog stories where the good guys come out on top. But I think what made them special was the care which he took. The characters are really thoughtfully rendered. And for a cricket fan, particularly a cricket-loving child, the matches are set out in plausible detail. So just quickly, complete ignorance, I have no idea what these books are. Or Or do I? I well that's funny I thought we had talked about back in the day the Glory Garden series they're a series of books about a makeshift 11 the Glory Gardens 11 that is put together by it's a good name um, it's not a bad name is it and the series as all good series do it slightly escalates so they start playing in their sort of local area and by the end of the series, they're playing in sort of international global tournaments. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like any good. It's thing. amazing. That's never happened to any <laughs> team that I've been a part of, bizarrely. But, yeah, not enough. Not, not enough glory. Um, but it, it, they're, they're, they're wonderful books. And I think in some ways, I, I was reflecting on the fact they're actually more progressive than I think I would have thought about at the time. So there's female players, there's players of different ethnic origin, which I think is the kind of thing that, uh, the fact that you almost don't notice as a child reading that shows how effective that sort of writing was. A lot of people credit them with getting them into cricket, but I can't really claim that. I think mm. I read them because I was already a fan, but they did pull me further in and I think really made me appreciate the joy of taking to a cricket field with friends. Um, and a few years ago, I had the huge privilege of actually interviewing him on Guerrilla Cricket. And, you know, the old sort of cliches about never meet your heroes, yeah. etc., etc. He was so kind, so thoughtful. And I think there's always that moment. I haven't done much interviewing, but there's always mm. that anxiety you have when mm. interviewing that you think, will this person see any reason to spend their time Well, so- sometimes they make it very hard to kind of mm. almost deliberately make it very hard for you. And at other times they make... Yes, exactly. They give, they they treat you with um, respect and and, and everything. So, yes, a a farewell to Bob Cattell. And uh, I think, like with many great authors, you know, the the writer passes on, but the uh, the works the works remain. So has it? And I'd also, I mean, this is me just being ignorant of all sorts of things. Um, I I hadn't seen that that he had died. Mm. Has it been much? 
covered? No, it, it hasn't been hugely covered, to be honest, outside the cricketing media. And I think it, it probably reflects the fact that the fact that I think his books were very successful, but successful within that world. You yeah. know, I don't think yeah. that these were. Uh, I doubt they did sales numbers to trouble. You know, J.K. Rowling, but I think within sir they, they are a staple within i think a lot of school libraries mm, for example mm, mm. um and yeah i i think it's also that thing that you've probably got a lot of people like me who read them who are now getting to that age where we're now old enough for a bit of nostalgia mm. so so when they uh when, when a figure like that passes on um yes it makes an impression but i think no you're, you're quite right i don't think it got um it got um coverage in much of the media which is even more reason for us to pay tribute here now speaking of mm, the world of moments, media moments you've in been the media focusing on yeah. what i think is a rapprochement it is so i was interested to see um on on the guardian website but published in the observer today we're recording on on a sun, sunday evening um an article by jonathan Liu about reflecting on a um infamous moment in in 2019 i think we actually talked about it on on the mm. podcast um he wrote an article which was uh talking about joffrey archer and the way that journalists characterized um joffrey archer and he i think um very uh, strong. He didn't call Jonathan Agnew a, a, a racist, but he, he strongly implied that there was a, a kind of racist leaning towards some of the um, some some of the coverage. And, and Jonathan Agnew kind of shot back very, um, uh, you know, kind of borderline abusively in a, in a series of um, Twitter messages, which Jonathan Liu then then made public, and it all became a bit of a thing. And suddenly, big cuddly Jonathan Agnew, everyone was mm. wondering, you know, is he quite the man we think? And blah blah. And anyways, there's this article in The Observer today where, um, which documents a kind of, well, a, a recent meeting between Liu and Agnew. And I think Liu reached out to him and said, hey, you know, time has passed. Should we, mm. should we get together and, and talk about this? Because it was a, a kind of particularly no. personal and vicious kind of encounter between the, between the two of them. It, it also felt very generational. In yes. I think Jonathan Liu is part of this new, and I'm a fan, you know, part of this new cohort of sports journalists who are, I think, quite fearless politically yes. um, and willing to write sports pieces that take you a lot yep. beyond sport. Yep. And I think at the time it felt like this clash between that new generation yes. and the Agni generation that, you know, David, I'm extremely fond of, but saw their roles perhaps slightly differently. Yep. Yep. Um, and, I, and I think there was no sense of um, that kind of... of Liu clearly clearly wasn't showing a kind of automatic deference mm. towards the old guard of, of of sports writing. There was a kind of iconoclasm, I suppose, about mm. this you know iconic you know beloved Jonathan mm. Agnew figure. Anyway, I, I recommend. I'm not going to kind of paraphrase the um, the article, but I recommend that 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 anyone reads it because it's it's remarkable in a number of ways, and not least the way that they approach, which is for both of them a very, what is for both of them a very kind of personal and charged subjects. And they actually start the conversation um, uh, talking um, about a guy called Lonsdale Skinner, who I'd never heard about, but was a um, a teammate of Jonathan Agnew's in the in the 70s. And Agnew kind of witnessed um, Skinner, who was a fast bowler, kind of receiving some, um, some, 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 some racial abuse. And they use that as a way into talking about kind of issues around 
things like unconscious bias mm. and then Agnew, you know, kind of talks about his regret about the situation and Liu talks about what he felt he did, you know, would have done differently about that situation as well. So some of it is is kind of, it's quite feel good in terms mm. of seeing these two people kind of working out their, seemingly from such intractable positions, kind of working out their differences. But what's also really interesting is that they use it as a lens to talk about some of these quite enduring issues in mm. the in the in in the world of cricket so it's not just about them kind of coming together and you know having a hug kind of thing it actually you know kind of touches in quite a powerful way on some of these questions that cricket is still very much grappling with around particularly around race i I think this week of all weeks we don't want to talk too much about you know politics or british politics but there is also something very heartening in that idea that two people who have had a disagreement both Mm. personally and on issues can reach out, can attempt to have a intelligent conversation mm. and bridge the divide. And I think that there is something, as you say, sort of heartwarming, encouraging about that. And yeah, once you make that connection, you think, well, okay, let's try and both get cleverer from mm. the exchange and from the experience. From the archives, and Andy is going to tell us about an English mathematician and his love of cricket. Number one, prove the Riemann hypothesis. Number two, make a brilliant play in a crucial cricket match. These are a couple of the New Year's resolutions of the English mathematician and cricket lover Godfrey Harold Hardy. That is so weird because they're on my New Year's resolutions as well. How are you getting on with the Riemann hypothesis? I've solved it, solved it. But tell me what it is first and then I'll solve it. Well, apparently it's extremely difficult. But um, I I should add that this was only the start of the list. So uh, Godfrey Harold Hardy also had Be the First Man Atop Everest and Assassinate Mussolini, which, depending on your point of view... Yeah, I was going to ask when when was he around, and I'm thinking... Both Everest and Mussolini give away something away. This is a list written in the 30s, one would assume. Yes, I should reassure listeners that this is a list that suggests a sense of humour, well, at least on some of these items, um, as opposed to to genuine ambition. Um, Hardy lived from 1877 to 1947 and is considered one of the great English mathematicians. Um, You may have to just take my word for that, although he made significant contributions to the field of number theory which for the uh, less mathematical amongst us is to do with the study of prime numbers Mm. Um, he has a particular fame interestingly in India as he was the mentor of the great Indian mathematician Srinivasa Ramanujan and being a cricket podcast we maybe won't dwell on this too long but it's a remarkable story in that no Raman- please don't hold well, <laughs> I will I will I will allow us a, a short digression which is Ramanujan wrote to a series he was a young Indian he wrote to a series of great mathematicians with his ideas and most of them dismissed him out of hand and Hardy was the one who recognized he was a genius and and off and off they went now, Hardy spent most of his career at Cambridge University and was a regular visitor to Fenners, the university mm. cricket ground. Hardy's love of cricket might be to thank for what has been described as the most important equation in biology. So, I'm going to try and back up that big claim. <laughs> yeah. It was through games of interdepartmental cricket that Hardy got to know the Professor Reginald Punnett, who was the head of the genetics department. They became good friends, and Punnett posed Hardy a problem that was troubling him. To cut a long story short, Hardy spectacularly solved it, and the result is a founding premise of population genetics, a concept known as the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. I mean, it's interesting that it was on the cricket pitch that they came together, because I can't think of any other sport, other than possibly lawn bowls, 
which would be conducive mm. to a meeting between a kind of mathematics professor and a biology professor, oh, as, well, as Mr. Mr. Punnett. What a wonderful name. So, so it's Punnett interesting was. because a lot of uh, big technology companies and big universities love this idea of sort of intermixing it between disciplines. You mm. have to find a way of getting people from different fields to talk to each other. And it turned out, in this case, cricket was that way. Hardy was, as an aside, apparently a, a half-decent cricketer and always... Yeah, so what, what, what did he do? What was his... Well, we think maybe more batsman than bowler, although he always resented the fact that he was never properly coached at school. This was always something he um, he felt, I suppose like all of us, mm. that with just the right bit of coaching, he could have been far better. He would have had stellar careers. It, exactly. Yeah. It's always good to, good to blame that. Um, not only did cricket play a role in sort of inspiring his help on that particular problem, it was something he turned to to quantify the greatness of fellow mathematicians. And I think this is something we all do sometimes. So Hardy would use the concept of Bradman class to describe those who were so far ahead of the rest yeah. of the field. And I think this is something that I find myself doing sometimes, that I, I use sports equivalency. Mm, I've mm. been called out for this by my wife for describing certain artists as Premier League or Championship, which is mm, a football mm, analogy. Mm. So, so there you go. Um, he turned to now he this in many ways Hardy is somewhat intellectually beyond the rest of your typical cricket fan but in one thing he was very similar in that he loved coming up with fantasy 11s now this is quite a team let me give you give you just one example opening the batting we had Hobbes and Archimedes <laughs> next we have Shakespeare Michelangelo Napoleon was the captain Henry Ford Plato Beethoven Jack Johnson Jesus Christ and Cleopatra. Well, on what basis was he choosing these people other than well, that they were... So, but hang on, was the opening presumably not Jack Hobbs? We're talking about the philosopher. No, we are talking about... Oh, God, that's a good question. No, I think we are talking about Jack Hobbs for the, in this particular So there's no instance. E in yeah. the name? There is no E in the name. Yeah. Okay, so... But, but, so, so there's one cricketer opening the batting and then so, the rest of it is just random people from, out, so, from well, throughout history that, that kind of excelled in their or, or, or is there some kind of science to this? Well, it's been hypothesised that there may be patterns within these 11s. So this is one, and you know, I will come back in a future episode and tell you about all the other 11s he came up with. But it, it's been hypothesised that if you know what you're talking about, you can come up with numeric patterns that link the members. I, I wondered, from a more amateur point of view, whether there wasn't just some sort of fun make-believe psychology here. So, for example, I like the idea of Shakespeare as a dashing number three. Um, mm, there's mm. perhaps a little bit of sexism in Cleopatra being um, relegated to number 11, but then perhaps being she was a, a fine bowler. bowler. Opening, exactly. opening the ball in um, the, the Jimmy Anderson style. I, I, like, I like Henry so, Ford in the engine room at number, at number five. Um, so, yes, that was rather good. N Napoleon as captain is also sort of hard to dispute. Um, sort of, a... you can't imagine that he would that he would necessarily have been anything else. When when you started off by saying um, maths and cricket, I was imagining that this guy would become completely engrossed in the statistical mm. side of things and that kind of. Because immediately when you think maths and cricket and you think you know school mm. books and you think that 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 world did he did he show any interest so in, reportedly in that? he did take joy in patterns and i think yeah. this is and again we are both speaking here uh i'm sorry i'm dragging you into this toby as well as sort of you know mathematical ignoramuses but you know obviously a, a, a key aspect of maths is the discovery and description of patterns mm. i think and this was something that Hardy used to relish, seeing numbers yep. in the scorecards, and particularly something like a rare pattern of numbers would be would be pleasing. Now, 
1931, he returned to Cambridge after a stint in Oxford and he was looking, he was almost conducting job interviews for a very serious occupation, which was to be his cricket-watching companion. <laughs> he heard about a promising candidate called Snow. It seems like an org- organic and spontaneous way to develop friendships, yes. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, why waste your time? You know, get, get, hold, hold, hold set vigorous standards yeah. and, and advice. Selection criteria them. are very important. Anyway, so Snow, so, snow comes along. Th- this is not a, an unfamiliar Snow. This was C.P. Snow, who right. was kind of academic, yeah. civil servant, novelist, yeah. um, perhaps best known today for his Two Cultures lecture, which questioned the gap that had developed between sciences and the humanities. And he was a great cricket fan. Famously. Great, great cricket yeah. fan indeed, and, and well, a player as well. This was some players. Oh, from, is that right? Memory, yeah. Well, this was to serve Snow very well because he got a full grilling from Hardy. He was asked to describe in detail how he bowled. He was asked who he would have chosen as captain for the Test match a year ago. What would his strategy have been if Snow had been <laughs> captain? Um, all these questions. Yeah. And I think the idea was Hardy was not going to suffer fools if he was no. going to watch settle no. down at Fenners. He wanted to be there with someone. Intelligent cricket conversation. Exactly. And there's a lovely line where Snow describes the moment when he knows that he's passed the test. He says that Hardy smiled with immense charm, with childlike openness, and said that Fenner's next season might be bearable after all with the prospect of some reasonable conversation. So there you go. As you said, this is the, this was the starting of what was to be a, a very, very fine friendship. Now, cricket followed Hardy sort of throughout his life and towards the end when he was suffering from severe depression and ill health um, and was cared for by his sister Gertrude, she knew what to turn to, mm. which was, of course, a history of Cambridge University cricket and would read it to him while he was bedbound. That d- d- bound to, to cheer the spirits <laughs> well, at, at any moment, a blow-by-blow account we, of we don't, we, don't, we don't have the account to know quite uh, how good a job it did did but certainly that was that was Gertrude's go-to um and there was a lovely line in terms of understanding how Hardy saw cricket as a consolation he is reported to have said to his sister if I knew that I was going to die today I think I should still want to hear the cricket scores to the review and for this episode we've been watching one billion to one the great Indian cricket dream so this is a hot off the press three-part documentary. Um, it's from the BBC. It was first uh, released in September, so just 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 last. Really month. hot off the press. It's yeah. very hot off the press. It's the only thing that's hot about it. I think it would be fair to say. The uh, one of the things that's brilliant about it is that it's very short as well. So it's three twenty-two minute or something episodes, um, and they follow. They each have a different theme in exploring, um, as as the title says, the great Indian cricket dream. Um, so the first one's about, about women's cricket in India, um, a deeply patronising take on women's cricket in India. The second one's about um, Bollywood and the IPL. And the last one is called um, The Great Social Leveller, and it talks about the ways that uh, anyone in India can achieve greatness uh, through the lens of um, through the lens of the, the lens of cricket. Um, Andy, I have the impression that you're going to be um, revisiting this documentary on a on a frequent basis into the future. Well, I actually felt guilty because I suggested this, and uh, it was it was hard going, which is a lot to say about what was not a long series. I think to be interesting, a documentary has to at least try and say something new. It doesn't necessarily have to be groundbreaking, but at least it has to attempt that. And the film instead settles for cliches, so we get India's passion for cricket is remarkable. Tick. 
everywhere you go you see street cricket tick mm. the IPL is the best in the world tick and it goes on and, and I think it's probably important to say at this point particularly given I, I know we've got um, you know plenty of Indian listeners that this is not us being I think negative about Indian cricket of which we're sort of huge fans of I think it's being us being negative of such a um, lacklustre and and simplistic take on it. Well, you kind of wondered who it was, who it was for, and who 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 the audience was, because so much of it was kind of skin deep, you know, mm. cliche. And as you say, there was kind of nothing new that you wouldn't get if mm. you've ever kind of encountered the um, uh, encountered the world of the world of cricket. I mean, it's there were. Su- What's interesting is that it touches on some really kind of profound issues mm-hmm. it talks about the IPL and the the huge impact that the IPL has had on the game and if you watch this series you would have nothing but this sense that the IPL was just this kind of absolutely kind of golden chalice that had completely revolutionized cricket's mm. future with no possible downsides you know whatsoever um and 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 ditto when it comes to that this final episode the great the great social leveler where you you genuinely do believe in the kind of great mm. indian dream when you come out of this yeah it, 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 is it a propaganda piece well do you think i think what was worrying particularly about that final episode is that i would never dispute this idea that clearly the money is life-changing for the individuals who mm. receive it but i think there's at one point um farouk engineer is interviewed and he talks mm. about fathers and children um particularly um from poor farming communities going for trials and he says look they have this chance at great riches and i couldn't help feeling what a dystopian sort of view of society this was you know you have communities facing often sort of brutal poverty and this idea that we should celebrate the fact that one route out of that is you know a minuscule possibility of ipl riches and whenever they whenever they tell the story of those people it is a story of tremendous triumph over mm. the odds basically and you realize that it is only the one in a million that ends up it ends up playing in the well, IPL. and again yeah. in the ipl episode there's this kind of argument that is made that um one of the great benefits of the ipl is that it kind of democratizes cricket from the perspective of the players because mm. suddenly you have way more players who are able to play at that high level because if you just have a single test you know mm. test one day t20 side it's 11 or yeah, yeah. 20 but, but but then you think actually really in a country of how many however many you know million people live in live in india but you know the ipl how many, how many like, cricketers yeah. are there on are, are, are there in the ipl it seems like a gross exaggeration well, to say suddenly this is made you know yeah. kind of um cricket so much more open to i mean it would be harsh to accuse this film as being the only culprit on this but at one point we get one of the players saying I believe that if you just try your hardest, anyone can achieve mm. anything. And of course, you know, to be fair, lots of schlocky American dramas have a similar vibe. But well, I think it's the great American dream. The great, the... Right. But I think what's so insidious about it is that it's obviously untrue. Right? Lots of people can do their best. And the idea that this is some sort of, um, yes, great way out of poverty for a huge number of people is, is, is not right. That the films as a whole steer clear of controversy and one of the only moments that we almost get anywhere near it is when Joss Butler tentatively suggests wouldn't it be nice if Indian players were allowed by the Mm. Indian cricketing board to play in other 2020 leagues and this isn't the most radical idea but in a film that is so bland I was really taken aback that this hadn't been cut I thought god I'm surprised that they actually let Joss Butler say that I mean I did I was interested in hearing actually I should never say the 
phrase, I was interested in hearing Joss Butler talk about dot 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 because it seems to me that Joss Butler is the kind of definition of sort of nice nice but dull. He comes he comes across as a very nice man mm-hmm. in this series. Um, he talks a lot about the the way that the IPL as a player is an opportunity to rub shoulders with players around yeah. the world, and suddenly you're learning from all kinds of different mm-hmm. people so yes from the fans perspective it's great that you get to see you know Shane Warne bowling mm. to Steve Smith um, but he talks about it from the players perspective and I, I suppose that that was something that I hadn't particularly I mean he says he's learned more about his cricket about. in the IPL than anywhere else which and I'm he credits very happy it as being a part yeah. of the kind yeah. of revolution of his game and him turning into a real yeah. kind of 2020 specialist but then I think isn't that just it. another one of those moments where you think a better film would have dug into that a bit because I believe yeah. it I mean I think I'm sure it's yeah. right playing with the best players playing under that pressure yeah. but let's get into yeah. it a bit yeah. more well I wonder the, the so talk, talking a bit about the kind of format of it because essentially, so it's a series of um, interviews. There's no narration, no no voiceover. It's kind of pieces to camera from a range of people. So Joss Butler pops up time and time again. Um, Farouk Engineer pops up um, time and time again. Um, Jemima Rodriguez um, uh, talks a lot. There's a... There's maybe um, something like there's no more than say eight to ten, aren't there? No, in exactly. the whole, in the, over the three episodes. There's the, and I've now had a complete um, a pajara. Um, Chitesra Pajara um, pop, pops up as well and so we hear from these people there's a couple of kind of administrators and behind the scenes types um, there are these interviews but then what they put against them visually is just a whole lot of stock footage of mm-hmm. you know random children playing in the street slowed down pictures of you know yeah. of young girls smiling while they catch a cricket ball kind of thing yeah. and it's just this kind of torpor the, the 22 minutes drag by yeah because fundamentally there is no interesting visual story to tell yeah. with any of this and combined with a complete lack of incision well, in terms of the direction yeah I'm not an expert on documentary making but it feels like it's been made somewhat on the cheap and that the interviews yeah. have been stretched to their limit yep. and the stock footage has been stretched to its limit um I, I think uh, amidst our negativity, I will find you know the odd little. Yeah, what did you best? What did you best love about this? Well, the thing I best loved was Jemima Rodriguez, who I thought mm. was a spark of energy, and I thought watching her speak um, in an environment that the other interviewees were clearly drowning in because yeah. of the sort of tedium yeah. of the yeah. questions. Um, I thought she is really box office, and I thought, wow, what an ambassador for the women's game, both in India and beyond. But let's not dwell too long on the positives i'm aware in any i'm aware the way tv gets made is complicated so saying the bbc made this is maybe tricky like mm. they put their name to something mm. but mm. i think it matters that they put their name to this because yeah. you know it is a mark of uh, traditionally the bbc is a mark of international quality um and this is not a quality production. Um, and what's and what's slightly worrying is, you, is is that you wouldn't want it to be a situation where the box was ticked around doing documentaries around mm. cricket buy something like this yeah because it really isn't a documentary no. about cricket it doesn't do anything interesting I actually no. don't think it does the game whilst it seeks to be a positive propaganda piece I don't actually think it actually does the game any any great service because I would justify I, I would I would challenge anyone to watch this and be excited by mm-hmm. cricket or be inspired yeah by cricket I mean, and that's kind of the worrying thing yeah. because how often are the BBC commissioning or making documentaries that yeah. very rarely if this is the one in the blue I, I think you're do, right I bit, think it misses sad. it misses all you know it misses both audiences in the sense that it misses your 
classic cricket fan, I think will struggle with this. And if the idea is to bring new lovers of the game in, I think they will find this sort of hard going as well. So, yes, we normally end this section by saying, you know, comes with our recommendations, find it in your nearest book. So it's, it's hearty but... recommendations to stay away. I think and, so, and do something else with if you're, uh, if, an hour of your if time. If you're tempted to watch One Billion to One, the great Indian cricket dream from the BBC, we recommend that you don't. Um, that was the 158th episode of um, of Reverse Swept Radio. Uh, find us on uh, find us on Twitter at Reverse Swept. Leave us a review wherever you listen. That was quite well choreographed, wasn't it? Yeah, this is what we can do when we're in the room we're together. We can finish each other's sentences. Um, read us a uh, read us a review. Um, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast, and we will catch you in a in a, in a few weeks when I'm back down under and Andy's here in London. Mm-hmm.